I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Joseph Finn. And we love to watch. We love to watch easily exploding motorcycles. Hey, Peter. Hey, guys. Joseph, thank you for coming back on so fast. Yes, yeah, surprise guest, Joseph Finn. Yay! Are you leveraging yourself into a third uh, hosting position? Pretty much. I was honestly, a couple of weeks <laughs> ago, I was curious who you who you had for Rollerball, and you asked me if I wanted to be on. I'm like, sure. I- An excuse to watch this again? A-OK by me. We haven't really talked about it that much this year, Peter, but one thing that we're trying to do more of this year after, you know, our first, uh, we actually are approaching our year anniversary, and we, we had all these great guests on. After every episode, we were like... I want to do another episode with that person. And so we're like, hey, why don't we just keep inviting these people back on as much as possible? And it's great because, uh, you know, we, we have guests that know the show, that listen, that have been on before. Uh, we don't have to explain the beeps to them. This is a specific reference for just our guests. <laughs> but, yeah, so we're very happy to have Joseph back on the show. Uh, he, now his, his fourth episode, his third appearance. So, uh, Peter and Dustin, if you're listening... I guess you got to come back on and, you know, continue the rivalry of who could be on the most episodes. Come um, at me, bros. Yeah. <laughs> We'd like to do a little twist on the three things about yourself. Thank God, because I think I've run out of things. Instead of three things about yourself, how about we get three things your wife would say about you? Oh, wow. Um, you're asking me this, this the day after Valentine's Day, so okay. <laughs> um well, she'd probably say I'm taller than she is. Um, I work downtown, and I've got uh, 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 blue eyes. How's that? So she just knows basic facts about you that she could get from your Facebook page? Basic biometric data, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when she arrives from Russia, she'll know more. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, we're actually going to dive right in. We have a game, uh, and then we are going to get into our... Third movie in Future Sport Month. Still not Future Sport, but it is 1975's uh, Rollerball uh, with James Caan. Uh, so we're going to get into that in a second. And actually, our game is kind of Rollerball themed. So Rollerball, and we'll talk about this more, uh, as a Future Sport, what it kind of does is it combines – it takes a lot of elements from uh, – different existing sports that you probably know. So there's some baseball elements and there's some football elements and there's some soccer elements, uh, some hockey elements, um, and even some basketball elements. And, and that's, derby. Yeah, and that's kind Mostly of where... Roller derby. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Peter. <laughs> um, no. So, they, uh, yeah, so it's, it's it does take a lot of components. So for our game show today, we're going to be doing the Game of Games, which is uh, instead Russia of... roulette. Yep. And look under your pillows. <laughs> um, no, each... Uh, jugger, instead of doing jugger, jugger. <laughs> we'll be playing online jugger. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an MMO. Uh, <laughs> pick your character. Do you want leather outfit or nothing? Other leather outfit. Uh, other leather outfit. <laughs> leather outfit or pleather outfit. Yep. Um, or one made out of your best friend, uh, Ruff. Dog boy. Yep, dog boy. Uh, So we're going to be doing the game of games, which is going to be five different questions from five different game shows that we have done for 
this particular episode, Rollerball. They're all going to be Rollerball themed, but there are five different game shows. You each get a question from each of those game shows, person with the most points at the end, much like every other game show, wins. You guys ready to play the game of games? Hell yes. Yeah, hit me. Who wants to go first? I will. All right. Your first question, Joseph. Can con can can? Yes, he can. <laughs> I, honestly, I have no evidence either way. We're going to say that is uh, correct. Peter, for your question from the game, can con can can? Same question. <laughs> no, he can't. Uh, that is correct. Some new facts have come to light since I asked Joseph the question. Uh, <laughs> so it is tied one to one. Uh, this is the next game show. This game show is called uh, Oasis Songs That Rhyme With The Movie Rollerball. Joseph, you're first. Champagne Supernova. Um, I only know one Oasis song. It's called Wonder Wall. Well, you have to tell me if Champagne Supernova rhymes with <laughs> the word Rollerball. See, you're not explaining these games very I feel like, well. I, I feel like the, ga- the name of the game was Oasis Songs That Rhyme With The Movie Rollerball. And I said Champagne Supernova. Yay or nay? Nay. Is it yay, yay or nay? Okay. Peter, does this Oasis song rhyme with the movie Rollerball? <laughs> Is that that's the problem? I didn't yes. put a I didn't put a question, didn't put a verb. Wonderwall. Yes, it does. That is actually. that is correct. Wonderwall does <laughs> does rhyme with rollerball. It's two to two. <laughs> Alright. Uh the next game show is can you sing the theme song to a James Bond film, but replace the titular song lyric with Rollerball? Joseph, your first, Goldeneye. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I got to choose the damn song. No, I, <laughs> I'm going to give you a James Bond theme song, and you have to replace the titular lyric with Rollerball. So, Goldeneye. Nobody knows the lyrics of the song, you know, you Goldeneye. Know, all you have to do is the part where they say Goldeneye. <laughs> but replace that <laughs> with Rollerball. So, like... The the one lyric. You don't have to sing the whole song. Uh, okay. Well, it's fine. Rollerball! Not even. Have you seen Goldeneye? That wasn't even close. Like five times, but nobody knows the song for Goldeneye. All right. A chance to steal, Peter. Can you sing uh, the, I know the, the titular? song from Goldeneye. <laughs> it's not uh, Whitney Houston. It's um, Tina Turner. Uh, and it's, it's, all I remember was her saying, with a golden, golden eye, so they would be with a roller, roller ball. That, that works. Excellent attempt to sing there. I concede my failure. <laughs> I also accepted, uh, roller ball, I found your weakness. <laughs> my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, the biggest Bond fan on the planet would be ashamed of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> Goldeneye, I put in my top fi- uh, top five bonds. I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, I think you're high as a kite on that one. But I but I like it. But I like <laughs> it quite a bit. Oh. <laughs> then are we? Are you sure we're as high as a kite? Maybe just high like a second story. <laughs> sure. We're not you're, all the way up on a kite. You're moderately high. It's in my top twenty. How's that? How about I'm high on a kite that happens to be trapped in a low hanging tree? Wait, isn't there only like twenty four <laughs> Bond films and it's in your top twenty? Twenty six. Okay. But I include uh, Never Say Never Again. It's a glowing endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the top in the top seventy five percent. Peter, you're you're up three two, but you still have your question. Thunderball. I don't know the theme to Thunderball, but Steel. I'll, I'll just say it's probably like Rollerball. Oof, judges. 
<laughs> Close enough. I don't know about that. But I guess jo- <laughs> Joseph the Judge, I guess that's how we decide to find the person not answering questions, uh, has awarded you another point. You're up 4 to 2. Uh-huh. I feel like there'd be a conflict of interest, and yet it's working out. In my yeah, favor. it worked out great. Typical liberal, even giving points to the people that are working against him. <laughs> uh, it's like the the Onion article, the ACLU defends Nazis' right to burn down ACLU headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> this is the exact same that Joseph awards you that point. Uh, anyway, so the next the next game show, the fourth game show, Peter's up four to two. Uh, as we've established now, there are steals, so it's still anyone's game. Um, this is called Con You Do It, and I'm going to give you a scenario that James Con did, and you have to tell me, as you, could you have also done that? Does everyone understand the rules of this one? I have a question about the rules here. Are we yeah. talking James Con personally or a character he played? Well, no, James Con personally. Unless he played perfect. If he was in a movie and he played James Con, ignore that version. <laughs> talking about the real life James Con called Con You Do It. You just need to tell me if you could, you personally could accomplish whatever this is that James Con accomplished. This is why these games uh, are getting a question apiece. All of these were attempts by me to make a full game and then giving up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joseph, Con You Do It, Con, you make your credited film debut in the movie Lady in the Cage. Absolutely, I can. Just give me a lady in a cage. You absolutely cannot. That movie was made well before you were born. I'm sorry, I have not been in a film, so I still could make my film debut. Just give me a lady in a cage, name the movie Lady in a Cage. I can totally do that. There's a copyright infringement from the makers of the James Con starring Lady in the Cage. Uh, judges? Lawyered it. T- titles cannot be copyrighted. <laughs> Oh, and you're litigious, typical liberal. <laughs> sure, Joseph, we'll give you the point. Um, I'm sick of arguing about it. Um, all right, Peter, can you do it? Can you star in a sequel to The Godfather? Uh, no, I can't because I would be dead. You personally? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I was un unalive at the time. The answer was no. As far as I'm aware, they're not making more sequels to The Godfather. So <laughs> you are technically right. <laughs> the best kind of right. Yeah. Uh, five, five to three. Last game. So uh, obviously there's this movie, the 1975 Rollerball, which we'll be talking about today. There's also a remake in 2002 uh, starring Chris Klein. In the uh, in America's every ever America's favorite leading man, yeah, in in the, in the James Con role. So I'm going to give you a fact about either James Con or Chris Klein, and you need to tell me does this apply to James Con or Chris Klein? And that's why the game's called James Con or Chris Klein. Uh, Can you explain the rules slower and louder? <laughs> James Con. <laughs> um, I can. All right, Joseph. Yo. Born in 1940, James Con. Or Chris Klein? James Kahn. That is correct. Peter, James Kahn or Chris Klein, spends every day wondering where his life went so wrong. Uh, I would say That's Chris Klein. That is, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think James Kahn was in uh, Santa's Sleigh, uh, which is a, Halloween, or a Christmas horror movie, so I think he spends every day just wishing he could get more Santa's Sleigh ro- roles. 
I mean, he can still probably be in movies. I don't think they let Chris Klein be in movies anymore. Yeah. They pulled his SAG card and put him in one of those masks from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, like, they, they let him out for to... American Reunion, but then he was right back in that cage. <laughs> See, I would like to make two points here. James Conn was in Santa Slay and Elf, which just is funny to me. Yeah. Chris Klein. Let's get, a, let's get a shared universe. Can you guys guess which movie he gave a shit in? Uh, Neither? Uh, I've seen Elf. It was Elf. Uh, Chris Klein, very good in Wilfred. Oh, really? Yeah, the uh, weird dog thing that, uh, uh, oh, God, now I'm blanking on his name. The guy who played Frodo. Yeah, Elijah Wood. I, yeah, I watched the first season and I quit. I don't remember him being in it that much. Uh, you see, he is in, he's much more in the second seasons and later, and he's very good. I quit at the right time. We're in a weird time for, like, TV redeeming actors. There was even that weird episode in Party Down that, like, with Steve Gutenberg just being, like, a stand-up dude and playing himself, and now I like Steve Gutenberg. Like, I'm really easily swayed from my opinion that actors are shitty if, like, they have one self-reflective role late in their career. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. Gutenberg was a good villain in the second season of Veronica Mars. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Do you guys agree with that that assessment? That like, if someone has a late in life sort of like looking back at their career and like they sort of um, uh, redeem themselves a little bit, that I pretty much immediately turn around. Yeah, I think anyone who has a sense of humor about themselves and like shows a level of self awareness at the at you know pitfalls of their career or things that they may have done wrong or just even you know Steve Gutenberg was great because he had I mean he was basically a punchline and I'm sure he didn't like being a punchline but he could also maybe and again I'm imbibing a lot of uh personal characteristics based on him him being self aware in a party down uh episode. But it does feel like when you see that, whether it's whether it's just trying to get in the spotlight or not, you think, oh, this guy is happy with the fame that he has had and knows that He's embracing what he is now, and that, like, really humanizes someone. And certain actors become better uh, actors as they get older. Like, I I have a fairly controversial opinion, and it'll probably piss off Marcus Jones uh, of uh, the uh, Jean-Paul Van Damme uh, podcast that we were both on, actually. But I think early career Van Damme, he was not very good. Uh, He's a great physical performer, but he just didn't really know how to uh, emote anything above, above, like, a charming smugness. It took him, I think he had to hit bottom before he figured out what he was as an actor. And I think he's like actually kind of an amazing actor now. He's exactly the person I was I was going to bring up before you did. Because I am, I could not be looking forward more to his Amazon series that uh, um, Jean-Claude Van Johnson series that he has. <laughs> the pilot was really funny. Yeah, I, I'm like, I, I am on board. And also that movie, J, J, uh, JCVD, is a fantastic movie that people really should see. It is. It, 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 that was a movie. That's exactly. That's that's uh, the Gutenberg and Party Down moment where I turned around on on him and started giving JCVD a chance again. And then I start. And then I saw the Universal Soldier movies and Enemies Closer and a bunch of his straight to video stuff. And I was like, oh shit, he's trying again, and he's trying in a in really challenging ways. Um, I, yeah, I, lo- I love him now more than I did. Yeah, I think the same thing happens when uh, previously uh, serious actors become comic actors. Like Alec Baldwin's a really good example of, you know, it's not that he was never funny, but he really, 30 Rock and some of his Saturday Night Live appearances really kind of changed uh, everyone's perspective of him and almost allowed like a second life to his uh, thespianism. Yeah, not to get too far into this, but I'm really amused that John Hamm, 
who everybody thinks is a, is a very dramatic, serious actor. He's been, he was on Mad Men for six seasons, whatever it was. But John Hamm, his friends in Hollywood are all like improv and comic people. And he shows up at podcasts and it's like, oh, this is what you actually are. You're a person who likes hanging out with UCB people. Yeah, exactly. Like on uh, Doug Love's movies was the first time I was exposed to that. And then I realized like... Oh, he actually kind of likes being a goofball more than anything. And then people think about like 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt as like one-offs for him, proving that he could be funny as well as dramatic. Like, no, he's he's always liked being a goof. Mm-hmm. And, being an evil, yeah. and being an evil Cardinals fans, but that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's from Missouri. He gets a pass. He's not like one of those like... Uh, Springfield, Illinoisans who uh, can't choose between the Cubs and the Sox. And right. And I've seen Ham's uh, Cardinals hat. It is the oldest, dirtiest baseball cap I've ever seen. <laughs> it's obvious he's had it since he was like 15. Or he doesn't take care of his property. Um, <laughs> you guys, do you guys want to start talking about rollerball? Hell yes. No, no. I need to know who won that last game. You did. Damn right I did. Let's talk about Whirlerball. <laughs> so, five-second recap, Rollerball. It is a professional sports player in a murderous sport uh, is given an out to save his life uh, by the head of the sports team, and he doesn't take it, but he ends up okay. My 90-second recap will begin with, uh, basically, we're in a world where one mega corporation, a mega, mega corporation, has basically swallowed the whole earth, and there's no governments anymore, there's no war, there's just, I think, five or six major, like, or, like sub-corporations or, like, business units uh, is, is the more modern term. Uh, one of the business units, the uh, energy unit, owns a rollerball team, uh, and that's where James Conn and his team play on, and they're extor- extraordinarily good. So good that James Conn is actually a threat to the sport itself because they just clobber the competition, and he's the best player that's ever been. Like a Michael Jordan or a Shaq or something, but like times two. Super, super legendary. But who also looks only kind of athletic. Yeah. He- he's got like, yeah, he, he looks like... um. Sort of like a 40s baseball player. Put a pin in that. I have thoughts on that one. I think he has a decent physicality in terms of, like, he looked good in this in Brian's song. Like, he kind of looks like an old school physical dude. He played some single A in Iowa. He doesn't necessarily look like a world-class, the best athlete in the world. So he's uh, winning and winning and winning, and we get some backstory in this world, and that he had his ex, his ex-wife was taken away from him in this sort of weird handmaid's tale where, like, wives get rotated by, like, request. You know, one of the executives in this energy corporation uh, makes him an offer, basically says, like, you should get out now. I can, I can make you happy. Basically, corporate has decided that you have to step down. Um, and they can't, like, make him step down necessarily, but they can kind of make his life miserable. Uh, and he he holds on to it uh, both for a sense of pride and also because he feels uh, you know loyal to his team and also like he doesn't know who he is without rollerball because he's given so much to the sport they go on there's an extremely brutal game in japan 
where clearly the, uh, the the corporate guys are trying to kill him or you know get his uh, make his life miserable. They uh, make it a super super violent game, super chaotic, and one of his teammates gets killed, and he starts to or excuse me, he gets uh, put into a coma. He gets vegetated. Basically, then realizes how violent the sport is. Uh, he but he powers through the threats and the offers of you know. We can give you your wife back. We can give you this. We can give you that. Uh, and at the end of the movie, uh, there's just this incredible orgy of violence in this event because they've pulled all the rules off for this final event. And he uh, is the last one standing. He he's murders other players and he's standing at the top, but he's the only one living left on this team. What I like about James Conn's role is James Conn was 35 when he made this movie. And he looks right as a guy who has been in this league for, they say he's been in the league for 10 years, longer than anyone has been. And James Conn looks right. He's physical enough, but he's got that kind of 35 spread is setting in that like, if you see ball players who were, you know, massive physical specimens when they were 21 coming into the league. They hit 35 and it was like, oh, okay, we're a little more comfortable now. Uh, we might be still physical, but uh, we're, you know, middle-aged spread is starting to set in. We get a little bit of a gut going. So I like that he's not, you know, some muscle-bound specimen. He's got a good middle-aged look going. Yeah, he's Kevin Costner and Bull Durham. Yes, Exactly. Uh, this movie reminded me a lot of Zoolander played straight because it does feel like a guy who's a little too dumb just trying to figure stuff, uh, uh, a conspiracy bigger than him out. Like I, I agree, but it's kind of a Rocky thing, though, in that regard, because Rocky's a, a moron and that's like kind of the charm of Rocky. That yeah. People forget. He, there's like, there's like moments of him like mumbling to himself in the spa, like trying to piece stuff together. And I really was like, I almost feel like I'm watching a alternate universe version of Zoolander. <laughs> I weirdly had, now that you say that, I keep thinking of, have you guys ever seen the movie version of um, flowers for Algernon? Charlie? No. Back in grade school, yeah. It's a science fiction novel, for those who don't know, but about a guy with a lower intelligence who gets his intelligence increased exponentially, and then it kind of descends because the surgery wears off. Yada, yada. It, this reminded me a little of it when you said that, that he's not a dumb guy, but he's tr- he's just smart enough that he can try to figure out what he doesn't know. He's not like Zoolander, like, I don't understand concepts, but he just, he's, he, he's trying to do, like, a major investigative work against a literal world domina- dominating corporation, and he is not up to that task no um, so to, to to spoil things a little bit that is my least favorite part of the movie is anytime that he has to go to a lab a library uh, uh talk to that computer like those are the worst scenes in the movie by far and not because they're boring though they are but because it feels like such a betrayal of what the character is and what the movie is i'm gonna quibble a little bit with um that because i did I liked the library scene conceptually, like the idea that, oh, yeah, we don't have books anymore because we uploaded everything. But we'll we'll tell you a quick summary of it. if you. But really... why is he looking for books? Well, that I mean, he doesn't seem like a dude who would give a shit about books. Like, why? What is his, yeah. his push to get a book? As, yeah. Well, that's also a good dumb guy thing. Like, I've heard books have information. Maybe I'll find the information <laughs> in a book. Like he watched an episode of Reading Rainbow they were airing and it's like, that's where I'm going to look. 
in a book. <laughs> However, on a purely enjoying acting stuff, I love Ralph Richardson as the guy in Geneva running the computer. Because he's It's a really enjoyable scene, but it feels like it's from a totally different movie. It feels like oh, it's from Doctor Strangelove. It it really is. I mean, I don't I don't disagree with you at all. But man, I love watching uh, Ralph Richardson, which by the way for people who enjoy House of Cards, he's the original uh, lead of the British House of Cards. And he's fantastic. He's the original Frank Underwood corollary. He is deliciously evil in those. He's kind of like a naive scientist in this, and the idea that he would hit a computer because it wasn't punching out the answers <laughs> that he wants is so is so funny to me. It feels like 60s sci-fi snuck its way into a cynical 70s sci-fi movie, which I didn't like because I like this movie when it's mean. I've sort of come across this like uh, realization about myself that like as somebody who's like almost naively optimistic sometimes I really like mean movies that lean into that there's a mean streak in the movie so when it like there's there's sequences in it that are just feel silly for no reason and yeah. that detract from what it's trying to do I, I agree with some of that but I do like the library scene especially um, I like it as world building into what this utopia uh, is doing because this movie really doesn't ever spell out how the system works. Um, there is a lot of conversations about it, but really, even at the end, you know, the, I, I, the grant, I don't want to get into the ending and how this kind of wraps around just yet, but the, the kind of way that everything is resolved where the grand conspiracy wasn't, wasn't as diabolical or as complicated as you thought. Um, as far as I could tell that it was just about, hey, we're going to have this crazy match at the end and we don't want you to die in it. So my general thoughts on how this movie does its world building is that it feels like a first novel and like the the cliche about first novels and like even me as someone who's like trying to write like a like a horror book uh, that with this big world and this big weird universe, like you just throw in way too many ideas and sometimes you have characters that are just being like uh, expository speaker boxes for the, the the author. This movie, like, it can't quite decide if it wants to be global in view. You feel like it's like The Hunger Games, where, like, The Hunger Games is global in view because her small revolution in these games has big impact. Whereas for what I think the character is, like, what you talked about, it's kind of, like, charming how he's not, like, a super smart guy, but he can at least figure out emotionally, like, when he's being played. I would like it better if he just figured out by, like, what he was actually exposed to right in front of his face that he was being played instead of like going to a library and trying to like talk to a supercomputer and shit like that stuff feels kind of like a betrayal of its like small world view and the movie sometimes just shoves this uh world building detail that like actually maybe more <laughs> would be more comfortable in a book because i'm more comfortable in books that just have like especially sci-fi like these five pages are just about how city planning works. And like, it's not going to weigh in on the plot, but it's color. In movies, I get kind of annoyed at that stuff because like, I don't know if they want me to picture this as a big world or they wanted this me to picture it as a small world that this guy is trapped in. Yeah, so I want to actually back up because I do want to get into some bigger themes about how that world uh, works. Uh, but before we do that, so I think we should talk a little bit about our history and just our general uh, thoughts on the movie, because I think that's going to segue into uh, something I want to talk about, something I didn't know prior to seeing this movie, because uh, like Peter, I had actually never seen this movie. Uh, I've never seen the remake still, uh, never planned to. It looked 
I remember mocking it mercilessly when it came out when I was like 19 about how dumb this looked. And and I kind of, you know, it, the thing is, I honestly think this is a, one of those movies where because the original was maybe not as well known to people my age, um, how either terrible Rollerball was if you saw it, the 2002 John McTiernan movie or just how terrible it looked as a concept. I think it did a lot of retroactive damage to this movie. Uh, because it, this movie didn't necessarily have the same like bona fide classic or still talked about on AFI list status uh, that that a lot of uh, higher regarded movies that can't really be hurt by future re- uh, remakes have. So I kind of lumped in that this looks stupid, and I never really sought out uh, this this one, even when that kind of negative connotation. Uh, had worn off, and I was uh, and I was looking more for you know uh, seventy sci fi movies. I really heard two opposing things on this movie, which was it's a bona fide classic and it's a boring slog. Uh, I think I said that in an earlier episode. And really, so while I've always kind of been like, oh, I should check out Rollerball, it just wasn't wasn't on my radar, or I wasn't rushing out to see it. Some of that is that anytime I see a movie that I'm iffy on, that's one hundred and thirty minutes. Uh, I'm, I may even want to rush out and see it less, uh, but I but I but I watched it for this uh, show and I actually really liked it. I it kind of started out uh, in a way that I was a little iffy on. Um, the the first rollerball scene is great, uh, and then there's like an hour in the middle where they don't show any fucking rollerball, uh, which you should show more often in your rollerball movie. Uh, but then the back half and like where the conspiracy ends up and uh, what the plan is for the final game. And the way everything came together, I really, I really ended up enjoying it. Um, yeah, Joseph, do you? Uh, what's your your sort of experience with this uh, this movie? I guess series because it's based on a, a short story that you you mentioned you've you've read, and there's the remake. Well, first off, the remake we can completely ignore that that exists because it sucks. <laughs> Somewhere, up. Chris Klein is crying. A little bit more to himself tonight. I have a soft spot for LL Cool J in movies. So, like, I love him in Deep Blue Sea and Manhunters. <laughs> I was about to say, is it because of Deep Blue Sea? I should have known fun. that that's where you'd go. Because he's so fun in the movies. And yeah. He doesn't, he, he, like, is really, in Manhunters, he plays, uh, it's, it's like a weird 10 little Indians with serial killers. It's a very strange uh, movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a Rennie Harlan movie, so it's got that sort of nonsense sense to it. Um, and uh, uh, LL Cool J is great in that. And then in, obviously, Deep Blue Sea, he plays like a goofy cook character. <laughs> That's like comic relief. And I love LL Cool J's in movies. So uh, the fact that no one... But I'm at the, it, this... I'm not saying I'm like old, but I'm at an age now where like when I don't watch bad movies for no reason or a completionist sake. Like I need to have somebody say that it's worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, get, getting back to the original Rollerball, um, this is my third time watching it. I am a little fascinated, not to get too philosophical about the history of science fiction movies, but I'm kind of fascinated with the late 60s through about the late 70s, what I call jumpsuit science fiction. Movies <laughs> that um, kind of look like our time period just because that's what sets they had to work with and there's jumpsuits sometimes diaphanous gowns i kind of lump this in there i lump 2001 is somewhat in there um logan's run which is a year after this by the way think about that um logan run feels like such a 60s movie to me right but it it is incredibly so it is 1976 
It's, it doesn't feel like a 76 movie. It feels like a, I guess like 70. It feels like a post-Summer of Love movie. Right. But you know the, the movies I'm talking about that have these kind of jumpsuits and they're movies this, that... The silent running. Uh, the perfect example yes. right there. Yes. I'm kind of fascinated by that, by movies that were done. Sometimes they were done that way because it was on the cheap. Sometimes you because you wanted to be... Uh, I forget who did the famous phrase, five minutes into the future. Um, and I find that really interesting when people are trying to do near-future science fiction. And sometimes it works. Um, and sometimes, in this case, I think it works quite well. Because it's very indeterminate as to when this movie takes place. They talk about the corporate wars. It's probably a few decades in the future, so who knows? But a lot of the stuff is extremely 70s. I mean, we can talk about the... Uh, the TV with the three separate uh, little TVs above it. That is so 70s right there. Let's say yeah. that. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of this movie for a couple of reasons. One of which is I love that it's not a sci-fi messiah movie. There is no indication that anything is going to change by the end of this movie. Just that he survived. It's yeah, not, it's that's not that he's point. overthrowing the government or the corporations. It's just, oh, he survived this time. So maybe things will change. Maybe they won't. But it's just he survived. And I really like that. Yeah, I think at best there's an implication that maybe the uh, the people of Earth might have grown tired with Rollerball after that extreme display. But even then, all you're left with is like a silent crowd and a beaten down James Caan just kind of going away. Uh, so there's yeah. there's there's like an implication of – not. it's not even an implication of change. It's the implication for the potential to change. But yeah, you're right. It's never – nothing's ever laid out on how that would function or the mechanism behind that change or that necessarily it's even going to happen. You know, you just – you watch a crazy sporting event. Maybe everyone just goes home, and by next season of Rollerball, they have uh, they have forgotten it. Yeah, well, I, I agree that it's a small ending, and that its effect is not going to be him saving the world, and it doesn't have a messiah thing. That part of it is great, and it's a great thing to point out. I think that he might have made the world worse because in the end, he chose to go out when everybody was basically dead on the track, and he could have just given up the game. He chose to still go out and participate in the super violent contest and break necks and break heads and murder. And people loved him for it. And in that way, the, the, the game does not serve its original purpose because he is now a sort of he's become a sort of god by being so fucking good at the game. But on the other hand, I don't see people being like, yeah. Rollerball should go back to having three penalties and Rollerball should go back to the, you know, what it was two rounds ago. Like, I see people being like, every round, every game should be this bloody. So he, he like, maybe he killed the game by burning it out or maybe the game will continue on in a way bloodier fashion. So I'm interested that you feel that way, though, because I feel like they make an, a point that at some point during this, you know, violent ending of a game where everyone's lying dead, the crowd stops cheering and they just sit in silence and watch the carnage. So I don't I don't feel I feel like the the implication wasn't that look, they still love it and he's their hero, but a 
holy shit, look what just like this, this, we crossed a line here because the crowd does not cheer. There's no, there's no celebration. They They cheer his name. They cheer Jonathan, Jonathan after he cold-bloodedly murders two other rollerballers. Uh, remember the guy? The guy runs through the fire at him, and then he breaks his neck yeah. over the bar. And then the the motorcycle guy goes around, and then he's just running around the track, and people are chanting for him. Like they're chanting for him because he just did something fucking awesome, which is murder people. Like they're excited for the blood. They, the blood is in the water, and they're excited about. Yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both, really, and maybe that's a little more ambiguous than I would like in this case. But I think it's- pick a side, liberal. <laughs> I don't want you in the middle ground. Be my enemy or my friend. Uh, one thing I want more I want to praise about this movie, and I want to contrast this with that last movie that you guys did, Blood of Brothers. But uh, that, that is what it's called, right? No, Blood but of heroes. No, but Blood of Brothers just, would be a better title. Yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 totally okay to get the title of that uh, movie wrong because, as we discussed. It is a terrible title for that movie. The sad thing is, I've seen Blood of Heroes, and I still got the title wrong. (laughs) One of the things I love about Rollerball is you understand the goddamn game, even though they never especially explain the rules to you. They explain just enough that it makes sense as to what the hell's going on. And because they take different components of sports that you know. Okay, yeah. this is like basketball. I got to get in the basket. Okay, if you tackle someone, you know, that that stops him. Like, it takes an, it. You're right. It doesn't explain it. Also, the other thing it does that Blood of Heroes did not do, the game is actually really fucking fun to watch. And it also helps that everybody's wearing different uniforms. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the colors are completely different. Like, it's uh, the, uh, the... Like a sport. For example, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Tokyo. Where, well, yeah, that's why sports teams purposely have two or three variations so that they can stand out more on the field. I go to Notre Dame games. Uh, I did growing up at least, and I went to one this season too. And people get really excited when they get the the traditional like gold helmets on. Like people get really excited about it. Yeah, people love colors. Yeah. By the way, ni- <laughs> nice Mets colors on the New York team, which I'm like, oh, that's deliberate. <laughs> and they've got those 70s stars on it. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I could go um, on and on about the 70s touches, like the fonts on Elevator Run. The fonts. Oh, God, the fonts. This is so funny to me. There are people in the crowd wearing, the with that font, shirts that just say rollerball. Uh, imagine going to, like, a basketball game and just wearing a shirt that says basketball across your uh-huh. <laughs> like, well, and it's not. I, like, I know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> You just be some, like, peak irony douchebag. Like, (laughs) I'm going to wear a Jugger shirt. (laughs) No one would know what you mean. God bless them. You know they filmed all the the rollerball scenes within the space of, like, a couple of weeks, maybe a month, because they're probably pretty complicated. It's all the same extras in in the audience, just switching out T-shirts. Except yeah, maybe for the Tokyo one, because it has a uh, a lot more uh, uh, Japanese people in it. But they're but they're all switching off uh, Houston and New York shirts all the time. It is really fun to watch. Again, it's taking exciting things. It is adding the idea of um, that that injuries are very common, serious injuries, and that's kind of what people want. And that's why um, eventually, when it gets to where they're creating a situation where injuries and death are more and more common. That, that people will enjoy that even more. So it – but it still is very exciting to watch uh, and 
So the violence on screen, though, does not feel as um, like people die during this movie. And most of those deaths are get seriously injured or like have blood on their face. It seems like kind of a light tackle, like they all might be Mr. Mr. Glass from Unbreakable or their new utopian diet uh, doesn't have much uh, calcium in it because it's <laughs> like people end up with violent fates, but the violence to get them to those violent fates is severely underplayed. Like a lot of the, a lot of the moments that essentially killed people in this, in this game for the movie seemed, uh, <laughs> seemed like less violent than your average football game. I get what you're saying. It, it makes sense logically because of how fast they're going. Like the motorcycles are helping them pick up a serious speed. Like with how fast they're going, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. But I agree with you in the sense that I love the, the, the rollerball scenes, I think they're really thrilling and actually like this is a sort of movie where when a rollerball scene is picking up, I feel a sort of uh, excited anxiety for like what's going to happen, uh, which is like a, a cool thing for a fake sport to be able to engender in you. I think it has a Top Gun problem. Top Gun has the this massive problem that it can't figure out how to deal with, which is it shoots against a lot of um, blue sky photography. And there's no point of reference, which means that planes don't look very fast from a wide shot or against any or without any frame of reference. Mm-hmm. This movie's really well edited. So there'll be a shot that shows you how fast they're going. And like there's shots where it's clearly they put a cameraman on roller skates. They didn't want to do that a lot, <laughs> but they did do it a couple times. And it's really looks really great when it does. But sometimes when they're just showing you the easy camera shots, the, the two shots from inside the center ring and, you know, the safe shots to take. It doesn't give you the sense of speed that it needs to give you. Because they're clearly going fast. I think they are going fast enough to suffer serious concussions that could lead to death. Yeah, I think conceptually that could happen. But when the scenes where they occur are like someone banging up against the glass at like 10 miles an hour. And the next thing he's like his bloody face is being dragged up against the, you know, I... I Maybe it's just the stunt coordination was uh, hard or they didn't need – they didn't feel like they needed the same sort of level of brutal violence that, you know, we have nowadays. But it, it was just kind of funny to have like these little bumps sometimes and people are just like, oh, my arm's gone. Until, of course, the motorcycle explodes. Yeah. <laughs> there is one moment where a rollerball comes out of the chute and hits a guy that's already down in the face. And that made me like, like incredibly uncomfortable because it's a, a visceral shot of a super fast moving ball right into someone's face and you're like oh that guy's dead like there's no yeah there's no fixing that and there's there's a couple shots like that later in the movie they do note that um i think this the last match has to be the most violent match someone notes early on they say like what's the most violent rollerball match and someone said and there there was like a game in rome or something that had nine deaths the last match literally everybody is incapacitated or dead and except for James Conn. Yeah, and they well and they cha- and they changed the rules to make that happen. I, yeah, I agree with you what you said a few minutes ago. I think that the when it first starts starts off you're like so this is like roller derby where you can hit each other like where is this going to get so future sportsy. Uh and then towards the end of uh the first round I was like Ah, I see. Like, people are actually getting really brutally injured. Yeah. Um, well, and the motorcycles make it a little future sporty. Yeah, yeah. Roller Derby doesn't have <laughs> motorcycles <laughs> that you can legally hit other team members with or yeah. kick people off motorcycles. 
That's yeah, but one of their you, notes in the movie. Yeah, people get injured, and when uh, when they do do some illegal moves, like you know, doing a drop kick into a motorcycle, and they're like, "You are in a penalty box, not cool." And that's and that's kind of the escalation. Is that part of their rollerball contract? Is that the league has the right to change the rules at any time? And that has resulted in more and more violent play. And for the finals, they yeah they remove time limits, so. Um, you just basically play until I, you're the last man standing, essentially, because they also remove substitution. So before, when someone would get injured, they'd put a new person in. Uh, and here it's just, you guys are, it literally is a, a death match. Yeah. Joseph, you were talking about earlier, um, comparing this to Blood of Heroes. And I think that these two movies work as a great contrast because both make up a sport, but rollerball feels like something that could, um, <clears throat> rollerball feels like a sport that's a little realer, even though it's much more um, complex than than uh, Jugger is, than the game is. It's much more complex. Uh, there's way more team members. There's more rules. There's more gear. It's it's like got motorcycles involved. It's got like three times as many people. Obviously, it, it's a much more complex game, and yet it doesn't feel as complex because of how well. This game does its world building in the first match, and it's all visual storytelling. Yep, it's, it's I, I mean, wonderful it's, visual storytelling. It's especially the editing. I, I, I just cannot. The editing's so good. Yes, uh, and I was looking up the guy who edited it. Uh, he died last year. Uh, worked with uh, Jewison a lot, Norman Jewison, the director of this, and it's really well constructed where you get the sense of the flow of the game I mean uh, despite the problem with uh, not quite getting the feel of how fast they're actually going but you get the feel of the flow of the game how the motorcycles work in it how the blockers work um, how when somebody is approaching the goal you get the line of the three or four guys who are set up to block the uh, attacker let's call them that and I think it's it's a really good world building and like oh I can understand this game I could sit down and probably watch this game with other people and you know yes it's putting a ball in the hole and you can punch people and you're going around a circle like it's not it's not the most complicated uh game but it just there feels are... complicated because there's so many moving components right but, but there it's, are it's fast and visceral it. yeah exactly and i really like how that's constructed um and you know what I, this just reminds me of something have you guys ever seen Slapshot? yeah yeah, this James Conn reminded me of Paul Newman, and yeah, right. And, and I, I just realized, wow, that does kind of feel like that. I think uh, I, I think Paul Newman was a little older when he did Slapshot, which is what seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. Um, yeah, maybe eighty, maybe eighty. But it feels kind of like that. The aging guy in his sport, but. Also, just how well it's done that you get the feel of how this sport and this team works, and I think that's really impressive in how this yeah. movie is done. Yeah, just slap shots a little more violent. <laughs> um, but I do want to talk about one problem I have with this movie. Uh, yeah. And this extends to the two hour and three minutes running time. Yes. Every yes. time a game starts, it feels like there's a 15 minute intro that we have to go through where people are going around the track. And it's in all three of the major matches. And it drives me a little batty. It's like, we don't need to do the whole intro of the game here, guys. And the corporate hymn, and the... Uh, oh, sorry, did we not mention that all the corporations apparently have their own hymn? 
Which amuses me. Well there's, well, there's only one corporation. Yeah, yeah. I've got thoughts on the music as well. Um, the corporate hymn was an interesting touch because it's it it, it it's a uh, the movie it really smartly early on throws that corporate hymn in thing when you're trying to figure out like is this a is this rollerball thing like five minutes in the future like like Joseph was saying or is it you know three hundred years in the future? It's it's nice to have that that calibration. Well, and it's more than a corporate hymn. It's uh, it's actually the corporate anthem, so people stand and put their put their hand on their chest, and I think that is important because it is a wordless anthem. It's just music, and it's not very catchy. And I got to tell you, super disappointed at the corporation of the future for if there's one thing that corporations are good at is writing jingles, and this for a corporate anthem is just a big piece of shit. They do refer to it to it as a hymn in the movie, so I'm not just making that up. But you're right. Yeah. I, as an anthem. Well, they, at, the, at the very beginning, it says, please rise for your corporate anthem. All right. So let me get into this real quick because I have I have some thoughts on the music. Uh, Norman Jewison was inspired by Clockwork Orange uh, in many ways, one of which was uh, Clockwork Orange's extensive use of classical music to try and help it not get aged. Um, which one of the lamest scenes in the movie is there's this dinner party where people are all like kind of staring into each other's eyes in this weird like di- like future dance and there's a synth playing. I'm like, oh, you were trying to avoid that, but you had to have a scene where there was a synth playing. Um, <laughs> but but the problem is he picked a baroque style music, which is like heavy and somber and sounds religious, um, which is like. It, it, I'm not not knocking a musical style, but it doesn't work for this because um, Baroque music doesn't get your blood pumping and it doesn't like warm you, or at least the music they chose doesn't warm you in the way that like a more uh, like uh, romantic style of, of classical music would like um, – like uh, some Tchaikovsky would like be perfect for this. Like, like something that sounds like the 1812 overture, like cannons and, and fanfare and, and big ballast of music, like something that gets your blood boiling. Cause the point in these movies is they're these, all these future sport movies is they're trying to hit it sort of a gladiator style, like bread and circus things, like stuff to distract, distract you from the dystopia. They're distractions from the from the shitty life around you. But here's the thing. If they played something that sounded like, I don't know, like the Rudy song <laughs> or the 1812 Overture or Beethoven or something that's a little like zippier and like thrilling and like actually gets your blood going. Um, it works better as a satire because like there are parts of Starship Troopers where you're like caught swept up in it. You're like, yes, go, go kick that bug ass. And then when you you like come out of the little thrill you're like you feel a little dirty and that's why like it works as satire because it catches you up in it and rollerball works uh during its rollerball scenes i think works as a satire because you get caught up in the mob the mob thrill and so i don't like the weird baroque music in it because it's just not and like i get he chose it for uh to add a sort of like timeless touch to it but like it's it's not. Do you guys know what I'm saying? It's not a thrilling style of music. Like it's not like an it's something you get pumped about. It's not inspiring. It feels like it was meant to some sort of uh, contrast in in tone and juxtaposition, or maybe like a a winking comment on the bombast of certain sports themes, where we're gonna do classical music, but we're we're going to do the somber one. So it was so 
omnipresent and so on the nose for what I thought they were trying to do that I thought it was supposed to be work in contrast to uh, what would normally be in a sports movie. Um, but I agree that I don't know, even if whether that's the case or not, I think that you're right that it doesn't, it's not as effective. If they were trying to undercut the, the rah-rah sports energy, they probably could have done a better job of just embracing it and, uh, and, and using it that way, because I don't, I don't think it adds anything, but I can see where it detracts. But, I do like how effective it is when it drops out in that final match, which is, I wasn't counting exactly when the music dropped out, but when the music drops out in that final match, it's really effective. And I think that's a great contrast there, because um, the the, the last five minutes of that match are almost silent. I mean, there's just little, yes, there's like little uh, sounds of the skates against the wood. Uh, the crowd is in a hush, and it's really effective the way it's done there. It's yeah, it's great. I, it's great. great I, yeah, it's great. I didn't like it when they undermined it uh, after the end, uh, after it had been silent for a few minutes when James Conn gets grabs that mic and says, now bring that beat back. And then <laughs> music starts up again. I, I thought that was a big mistake. Um, yeah. I would pay very $5 inspiring to hear to, my to, James Conn do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, I wish the music caught me up like a like Rudy or something like a, yeah. or um, Chariots of Fire like something where you're like oh I'm, I'm I'm caught up in this the majesty of the sporting event like I think the movie could have used more traditional beats to kind of make you feel sick when you're like oh I'm cheering for the death of people. <laughs> So in, I think that's a good comparison to Death Race 2000 because Death Race 2000 really leans into what you're seeing for the most part is what you'd probably be seeing on television. So you don't get that kind yes. of filter in between where Rollerball has that like space where the filmmakers are trying to comment on it a little bit more. Uh, and I think that you're right. That takes away from uh, some of the satirical elements. I want to circle back. It's though, not something. as confident. It's not as confident. Yeah. Like it, it feels like Norman Jewison was like. It was like, oh yeah, you guys know this is bad, right? This is bad. Did you guys know this is bad? Yeah, and much and and much as I have other feelings about Death Race, uh, I'm not the biggest fan in the world. Uh, you are. You, I, <laughs> I thought I, I thought you combined with Peter to give it five stars. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do want to circle back on something that you said, Peter, because you called this a dystopia, and. I think you could make that case, but one thing that, you know, when we were doing Death Race 2000, we said, oh, look at this. We we chose four movies that are uh, dystopian future sports. I don't know if that's the case with this one. This feels much closer to Utopia uh, than it does a dystopia, where really people have whatever they want and they're they're happy. They don't, you know, it's not, it is, it's not, I feel like this sport is played as less of a distraction from the the hellish uh, fascist dystopian nature of their life, but as like the ability to let people feel something uh, that they don't feel anymore, like an outlet for yeah. these emotions. So yeah, I, I do think it's, it's more like a brave new world, false utopia. Exactly, yeah, you've I, given everything that you're given everything that you want, but do you? Is that actually enough? But I just think it's I think it's so funny because we we kind of accidentally did. Well, not accidentally, but instead of doing three dystopians in a row, we did dystopian future sport, we did apocalyptic future sport, and now we're kind of doing utopic uh, future sport. And I would say that we we only really see a bit of the executives and the athletes. We are not seeing anyone living who is not in this top tier. 
So it's true, re- but they do make a point to say that. I mean, no, again, we I don't know if it's propaganda, but I, I think with the distance that uh, the the director is giving to the audience to kind of let you know what's really going on, I don't have mm-hmm. any I don't have any reason to doubt that when they say everybody has everything that they want, that that's I I think that's supposed to be sincere. Um, I, but like they're 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 getting rid of books, they're reducing knowledge, which you know is inherently a, a censorious act because you're re- removing. Um, you're removing art from things and you're removing, uh, you know, uh, subtlety and vagities from art. And, you know, obviously who controls what is a good reduction of art. And also the fact that, like, this guy's life is getting screwed over and the fact that, like, he didn't want his wife being uh, taken away, but she was taken away because some executive wanted her. Like, there's enough hints that this is this is a society is not making people happy. And also... I think, like I was saying earlier, one of the problems with this movie is that it, it can't decide if it's a big picture or a small picture movie. It is a small picture movie in the sense that we don't see anybody else's perspective, like no normies. We just see like executives and rollerball champions, which both of those people would be able to live with a sort of um, opulence that... I, I guess logic would dictate not everybody could have. Well, they do mention, and this is one of my favorite touches of the movie, that James Kahn has a literal privilege card. Mm-hmm. Yes. That yes. He, so there are tier you, you have, of yeah, people. You have your privilege card, right? Which was fantastic. <laughs> Which, and I would like yeah. to note, the guy asking him has the greatest name in the movie, Moon Pie. Moon Pie. <laughs> <laughs> He's like this, like, this, like, uh, corn-eaten, like, D- dummy who just like doesn't know anything but how to win and like there's a section in the movie where um they're being taught new fighting techniques uh for this round against japan because they're like these people know how to fight which there's some we'll unpack the racism in this movie against asians because there's some yellow fear stuff in this movie that's really unfortunate yep. um, it's the 70s going into the 80s like we're fearful of the japanese they're the enemy of the moment because they their economy is rising and they managed to bounce back from world war ii like it's we were afraid of them um sort of like how we view china now um anyways so he's like he's like this big moon pie is this big dumb animal and there's a scene where he's like yelling down and chanting down um this uh instructor who just wants to teach them like some basic defensive techniques against the style of fighting that tokyo is going to use and they're all just like embarrassing him um and there's this, this shot of the mob yelling him down that's uh, sort of indicative. It's a microcosm of the whole movie where the whole movie is about this like powerful, violence-seeking mob. And Moon Pie is like part of this violence-seeking mob. Like he's he's like, it's, op- it's obvious why Moon Pie is like almost set up to be the heir to Jonathan E, which we'll talk about that later, but to Jonathan E because... He, the crowd must love him. He's he's charming. Uh, he's like, he, he, but he's like not um, intellectual. He's just, you know, power id. He's just like violence and forward momentum and pride. Yeah, I think that you can, you know, I, I think that does demonstrate that they weren't even willing to listen uh, and kind of shouted him down. And immediately when, when the instructor was trying to give them advice on the Japanese team, they don't even let him speak before they're saying, we can do this. We don't need your help. 
Um, but on the flip side, I mean, I saw his presentation. It was just an outline of a person with five black dots on like his <laughs> neck and like his head, and because he was trying to highlight where they could hurt him. And I, I feel like if I walked into a room to learn the secrets of taking down the Japanese in a rollerball match, and I just saw something with an arrow pointing to their head and neck, I may go, I don't think I'm going to get much out of this presentation. And there's an earlier scene in the movie where Moon Pie is talking, of all things, about ganglia. But all he knows about ganglia is in terms of how to damage somebody. You hit their jaw hard enough, drive it up in the ganglia, that'll take them out. Like, he's maybe not especially dumb, but he only cares about very specific things. Yeah, now if they would have had a if they would have had a, a presentation with a clear black dot on the ganglia, maybe he would have sat and listened to the whole presentation. And I'm like ninety five percent sure that that's not where ganglia are. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I'm not uh, sure. Moon Pie is the one to ask about that sort of thing. Well, show me with a black dot if you want me to listen. <laughs> I'll have you know, my doctor's name is Moon Pie. That's I don't know how to tell you this, Peter. That's not a doctor. Um, <laughs> that's the guy that catches fish down by the old creek. <laughs> Oaky noodling. Yeah, just those shoves his hand in, and a catfish clatches out. <laughs> those we, hooks are not medical all. instruments. What other big moments or bigger themes of this movie did you guys want to touch on? I want to talk about women in this movie because we've really yeah. been kind of circling around that a little bit. It's like I never women, figured this out. Women. It seems like everybody is employees of the company. I think that's pretty clear. And women. Some t- some of them get rotated around from uh, assignment to assignment. Sometimes they get assigned as wives. Sometimes they are assigned as uh, companions to players. And I think it's a little vaguer than some of the other stuff in the movie. And I think that kind of ties into the dystopia of this, where everybody works for the company and you better keep along with your assignments. There's no running from it. And I wanted to know what you guys thought about that. Yeah, there's a there's a I, I made a joke about it when you're we trying to name the episode, but like basically James Conn gets cucked by the government. Typical liberal. <laughs> Typical liberal. But he like is fine with it, uh at first when he's he's talking about they first approach him, uh, we want you to leave the game or whatever, and he says like, you know, when you asked me to like you know, you took my wife away, like you took my wife away, that's my only only reason for being alive, but he he's just kind of like sort of kicking the dirt as he says that, which implies to us in this universe that wives get rotated and like you don't really have much of a say in that. Um, and yeah, like he 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 loses favor with his second wife, and she gets rotated to somebody else, but like they're in the same social networks, so she shows up at a party with her with him. Yeah, and. She, and she seems pretty pissed about it, though. Like, it's a utopia for men, at least. Like, this has this system can't be making women happy, right? Like that, right? Like, or, or is the rotation just like hurting men and women equally? Like, what's what's the deal with? Yeah, <laughs> what's what's the deal with how this rotation system works? Because it sounds like it hurts everybody. It's not quite Handmaid's Tale, where like men have all the power and can rotate out the women it seems like it seems like also i guess men are making the decisions though i feel like it's less about the utopian or dystopian future and more about that that there still is like a 
new aristocracy that's being run by the the chairman of this the board or the the board of directors of this corporation and they still kind of have the power to pick and choose because he mentions that hey sometimes if a powerful guy wants your wife you lose your wife right. so it it feels a little bit less like a um as simple as like uh, we rotate the wives around and more like yep there are there are people in this world that are basically can do whatever they want and you're not one of those people even though you're super popular so i it's it's the board of directors of this uh worldwide corporation so it feels more like a, a standard like duke of energy wants your wife so you have to give up your wife Though I get the feeling from uh, when he, and there's a scene later where he meets his former wife, who is now married to an executive, I get the feeling she's married to a fairly minor executive. The utopian aspect of it is that people seem pretty chill about it, so it seems to be post a sort of post-marriage, post-sexual um, revolution picture of what sex will be, you know, 200 years from now or whatever, X number of years from now, like Joseph said, it's hard to tell. But like... She's, she's a little bitter by by this, and she seems to take a specific thrill in that um, blowing up the trees moment when they have that, like, sort of, like, grenade pistol, bomb pistol, and all the, the partygoers are, like, it's the crack of dawn, and all these partygoers are blowing up trees with that gun, which is also sort of part of my, my point that this is about, like, an angry, violent mob uh, satisfying their violent whims. And she seems to take particular delight in blowing up the trees on on his property. Like, everyone has a sort of passivity towards this, like, wife swap thing. And I think it's sort of him trying to project, like, and and in 40 years, no one will be married. Yeah, I mean, once you hear the story behind that scene, though, I think it takes... So, the, the reason that that scene's in the movie, I don't know what thematic resonance that you're giving it, is because... Uh, Norman Jewison had a friend who wanted to do some landscaping but couldn't afford it. And they're like – Norman's like, buddy, I got you covered. I'm going to shoot this movie. We're going to get rid of those fucking trees. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, they're ruining my sight lines. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> That's obviously a made-up story. Um, I don't care if it's true or not. It's still beautiful. <laughs> um, well, because at first it was such a weird juxtaposition. And Peter, I really do like your that. That makes sense that there was a lot of frustration, but it kind of feels like everyone's uh, frustrated. And obviously, I mean, I don't think I don't think anyone would debate that. Clearly, the women in this movie are uh, second-class citizens, and for the most part, men run the show and they get to choose whose wives. And that way, it does go back to you know uh, a fiefdom. Uh, where, you know, women were second-class citizens. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's, 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 yeah, maybe, maybe less utopia, maybe less dystopia, maybe just, uh, you know, the kind of idea of, uh, an updated aristocracy for, but this time instead of, uh, dukes and duchesses and prince and princesses, they're the heads of corporations, which is actually a pretty clever, uh, comment. Uh, anyway. So one other thing that I just wanted to mention was James Caan. Uh, and this, you know, we've talked about this uh, when we were doing Predator 2 and talking about Bill Paxton. I kind of had a couple moments during this movie where I was like, is James Caan a good actor? Because yes. the southern accent he is trying to do, uh, which is about as consistent as Kevin Costner's uh, Robin Hood accent, uh, is oh, so bad. 
It's so bad. It's really not good. And it's... I really like James Gunn. I think he has a lot of charisma. I think he's got a good screen presence. But it was kind of that, I don't know if he's like a good actor actor. I think he's a good actor. The accent goes in and out. Yes, I will not deny that. But I think he's fine in this. He is, he's trying the accent. It's problematic. Sure. But he is not winking at any moment in this movie. I think he's committed. And, And I'm willing to forgive a lot for that. He does it just fine. I really like James Conn, and again, I think he's really good in this movie, but when he tries to, like, stretch it all, I think you see the seams really quickly, and anytime he tried to throw in that accent, it was like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I don't hear an accent, I just hear, like... Well, oh, what scene were you watching? Con- what scenes were you paying attention to? <laughs> I don't hear an accent, I just hear... The only time that I don't like James Conn in this is that is when the writers shaft him like the scene where he goes to the library which like i said i like this movie when it's from this perspective keeps things small keep things keeps things tight uh doesn't try and go global there's a scene where he's in the library and then the librarian is it's like the most smug intellectualist bullshit i've ever seen it's like this library is like yeah then we condense all the books and then the this isn't a real library there's a books libraries and he's like So, you're not a real librarian, and this isn't a real library, but he had nothing to work with. That is the only time in the movie I don't like him. I really love how understated he is, and how he's just sort of this, like, gruff, working-class performance, this dude who just doesn't really know how to emote. He doesn't really know how to talk about anything except for rollerball. (laughs) So, when he's he's talking to young recruits or those kids or whatever in that weird scene... (laughs) <laughs> they're, they're recruits, I guess. Yeah. Um, cause, but, but not really recruits, because you don't see the big tall guy in it ever again, do we? Uh, the one who tries to sneak so. up on him? Yeah, and he trips him. Like He doesn't trip him and then murder him. Like he, He's just tripped. He can get up. But he, th- that guy should theoretically be on the team for the second or third game, right? You would think, but no, he never shows yeah. up again. Yeah, he's, he's huge. We'd notice. So I don't, um, I don't know if he's if, it, if he's talking like to like AAA guys or what. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe yeah, they're minor leaguers. Anyways, but he during that scene shows this like confidence in talking about the game, and he's talking to his his uh, tr- he, like he comes home and he doesn't want to see his wife. He wants to see his trainer. Like that's when it, he, James Con has variation yeah. in his role is when he's like really excited about talking about the game, and then when he's confronted with like emotional issues or um, somebody's trying to tell him like, hey, you can't play the game anymore he's like uh um yeah yeah i gotta i gotta go <laughs> and to give you a little background uh, because I, I i actually have the short story this is based on uh which is called rollerball murder which is mm, not quite there he yeah. talks about how he is a duck he was a duck worker and got married at 15 and he likes to think that he was a bastard of an executive but he's not quite sure which i think gives you some insight as to where the hell he's coming from He's just a so that, semi-literate dock worker, basically, who lucked into becoming a rollerballer. But he still values the idea of, like, maybe being the kid of an exec. So that implies right. that he's, like, minimum second generation in this new crazy world. Yeah. And it also implies that there are dock workers in this world. Obviously, the short story is not canon for the movie or whatever, but, like, if it if it is, that means there are dock workers in this world, so it can't really be utopian. They're really nice docks. they're really shiny Um, yeah they're really they don't have to do much the boats are all automated 
Yeah, uh, they give I, them great jumpsuits. I will say, rereading the short story tonight, it's only 16 pages. It's actually really close to the movie. Um, it ends just before the final match, though. Mm, I don't know. 16 pages uh, sounds like it understands the concept of brevity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which the openings of every goddamn match in this movie does not i'm not saying this is a this is a movie you need to cut to 90 minutes i'm saying that this is a movie that you need to cut at least 15 minutes from and a lot of it is the bullshit between matches yeah there's that whole out it's it's over an hour from first match to second match and there's only three matches in this movie so th- that hour in the middle, really could have, really could have trimmed some some yeah. fat. I, I want to talk about some of those little moments, though, in those scenes that we liked uh, as we move on here. So let's let's talk about the the four TVs because <laughs> I love the idea that someone in the seventies was was like, okay, well, it's the future. We need like we need to show the TVs have changed, and what do we do? Like make a real big one, and someone's like. No, TVs can only get so big before it gets crazy. Let's just do one pretty big TV and then three little ones on top of it. <laughs> and everyone's like, that sounds like the future to me. It's so silly. It's really silly. It, it is so very specifically mid-70s. Yes, yes. There's a lot of very mid-70s thing. The the post-sex revolution thing where, uh, you know, the couples are getting rotated Obviously, the rollerball font. Yeah, it's it's a it feels very like post summer of love in that in a few regards. I mean, we haven't even talked about John Houseman, who's the uh, head executive in this movie, <laughs> and his meditation room. What the hell yeah, is that, that thing? Which the it's the future. We eliminated wind, so we had to do something with all the wind chimes. <laughs> Put them in this room, <laughs> and they're, and they're sharp as fuck. Apparently, yeah. Not only does James Cotton cut himself, he like remarks to the to the guy like it's apparently a serious enough bleed that he has to tell him. Yeah, and John Houseman, uh, the whole time really, really is laying it on thick that he has something in store for old Jonathan. Like that first scene when they go and visit him in the locker room, and he's like, "Perfect, perfect special, perfect special boy, Jonathan." Well, we've given him everything. Can't give him any more. He's so perfect. Oh, uh, everyone just loves you, don't they, Jonathan? It was like, I, I what's what's thicker than thick? This is, <laughs> this is this is choking me. I honestly love the air of menace behind it in that scene because it's like, okay, the, everybody here knows this guy controls their lives, and they're trying to joke with him. And some of them feel more comfortable with it because they're like Moon Pie or they're Jonathan E. Because they're higher up in the hierarchy of the team. But they're all basically, their lives are in his hand. So they're just, you know, trying to be as supercilious to this guy as possible. Yeah, but he yeah. he he feels like in going so over the top with his menace or his like intent to do some version of harm to Jonathan at some point. That they're trying to clue in the audience. Yes. And that's I why it feels be. over the top. It really it goes on forever. I wish I would have just had the whole quotes, but it is like I'm, I'm surprised at one point he didn't like hug him and was like, "You're just my beautiful little baby boy. We're never gonna <laughs> let anything happen to you, Jonathan." <laughs> I knew it was you, Jonathan. I knew it yeah. was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James Con wouldn't get that reference. He never saw uh, the second one. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, that locker scene is great, though, because it, like, makes you feel the energy and the pride that these people have for their team. And it's early on in the movie, so it helps you endear yourselves to this team, despite there being a weird shower scene where um, Moon Pie just says a bunch of racist shit about Asians. And then 
Jonathan just goes like, <laughs> oh, moon pie, and smacks him <laughs> on the back. And then, yeah. I don't know, they like, what, whips him with a towel. And he's like, you're so smart and right all the time, moon pie. Thanks for being on my team. I think Jonathan's in love with moon pie. Changes his opinion about the game directly dependent on moon yeah. pie getting and vegetated. And I can guarantee you that moon pie is not even the second person on his team who's been put in a coma. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, actually, it's not even the fifth. No, actually, one of my favorite scenes is actually the midpoint gym scene where they uh, they start and everyone's working out and prepping for the big game, and everyone is is ripped and everyone's shirtless and they're lifting weights and like it's just like it's just the framing, so all you see is their body, all you see is their muscles, and it just like goes through five different people doing different exercises, and then cuts to James Con. He's wearing a tucked in T shirt. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I get it James Conn doesn't to compare but it, it was like the, the fat kid uh, that wanted to wear the t-shirt in a pool scene like it was everyone else's swimming uh, fit in shape working out and then they cut to this other kid who's just wearing a, wearing a white t-shirt in the pool he's like I I, it's the same right I don't think any of those ripped people are actually on the team in the no. actual games that's why you don't see their faces <laughs> like it's just <laughs> Neck down. Yeah. I mean, I will note four years before this, James Conn was in Brian's song where he convincingly yes. played a Bears football player because football players looked like that in 1971. Nobody yes. was that ripped. Yeah, they all looked like they ate steak and eggs for breakfast and then um, crushed hams cans against their forehead all day long. Like, they just, like, drank beer and ate hot dogs all day you can't tell if you wear a shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or they have like a part-time job with a local uh, warehouse because they're getting paid nothing. Well, yeah, we got a great uh, we got a great situation now, which is our dystopian future, where the uh, the same channel carries uh, different careers where you have to either work out all day or eat all day. Yeah, <laughs> eating competitions plus. Uh, weightlifting. So let's uh, let's get into the ending quick, and then we can get into any stray scenes because. Um, I know we kind of talked about the ending for the most part, but I think we've only touched on uh, the twist and what the secret was in passing. And I want to give it special mention because I really, really love that he thought he was part of this grand conspiracy and they were taking him out of the game for some reason he couldn't figure out. And at the end of the day, he they just didn't want their marquee star of the sport to die in a death match that they knew that they were creating. And I think that's, I think that's wonderful that there, the there was sinister motivation, but our protagonist is not part of the sinister. Like they're actually trying to save him, knowing that everyone else is going to die, and or everyone but whoever the final one would would have been if Jonathan hadn't been in there. So I think that's a great touch that, um, that they he was trying to uncover the plot to save his life. Yes, but there's also the part about where they go on about how the game is meant to show the futility of individual achievement, and that's why they're trying to get him out of the game. That's also part of it. So, I that's, mean, they're, that's they're not true, trying to kill but, him, but they're trying to force him out. And I think that's But they are going to kill ev- they are going to kill everyone in that last. So, that was my internal debate. So, I did interpret it that you're right that they they didn't want to show the futility of or they did they wanted to show the futility of individual achievement. 
But I was pretty sure that they were already planning to have this uh, deathmatch version of Rollerball for the finals. I did toy around for a little bit where when he wasn't going to go out of the game, they then were going to institute this deathmatch rule to give him the ultimatum where now you need to get out because you're probably going to die for sure. I didn't think it was that, though. I really thought it was they did not. They wanted to save him on some level. I think you're probably right because they didn't want to be too obvious about how, I mean, they didn't want to seem too evil because they're trying to maintain a a solid society, yada, yada. I think that's probably right. Yeah, and it's a little bit at odds with, you know, I know they talked about the individual achievement thing, but on the same note, then why are they producing these, these television specials to honor these great players of the game? Like, that's the same company that's doing that. So... Though they say specifically that he is the only one they've done it for, so I think it's part of the way that they're easing him out. Or trying to ease him out. But why, I guess guess my question would be, why would they produce a big television special honoring him if they're trying to downplay him as an individual sports superstar? Because it would seem weird to just, you know, get him out without... I don't know. It's not the greatest plot point of the movie. I'm just trying to justify yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I, I, I think it is a little thematically confused. Because um, even I think they even at one point talk about that uh, you're going to get your special. And I guess I took that to mean that they had made other specials for other people. But maybe I would misread that. But I, I think they said it was he was the only he was the only one to ever get it or it's extremely rare. Okay. The special, the special deal. And that's right. why every, he had a big party to celebrate it. And he had this, all yeah. these people over and, and such to watch the special. And he doesn't really care about it at that point. He probably did when the movie started. But by the time the special arrives, he's like already uh, antagonistic to the system. So what what did you think, Peter? Did you, th- I mean, I guess, I guess both can be true. I guess I liked the version more. In my head, where at the end of the day, they were trying to stop him from getting murdered in this, in the rule change that they were already planning to do more than anything else. Them stopping, wanting to stop his murder is almost like them wanting to avoid a martyrdom. But, like, they don't care about martyrdom in the system. Like, they value death. Like, the death in the system, like, is is considered a noble thing. This rollerball in this rollerball yeah. system, like a death is considered like they're like, oh, that was a that was a pretty bloody game. Like, thank you to those champions that fought so hard in it. I, I, I think that they were just trying to retire him because he got too big for his britches. I'm I don't think that they were trying to protect him, and I think they were arching up the um, the difficulty like a video game <laughs> to try and like push him out. I think that would be that would be this this the path that makes most sense to me. Though I can it, totally see what you guys are saying that like they wanted to save him so he didn't just get an ignominious end. Yeah, because I did believe John Houseman when he was saying, "Hey, you you know go live your life in comfort. You'll have whatever you want. Um, you you've helped. You've done a lot of good stuff for us." Like. I felt like that moment was sincere, and they had talked about how the sport had gotten progressively more extreme even before we get to this point in the movie. 
So I don't think that, like, they all of a sudden started ratcheting up the difficulty when he wouldn't go out. And maybe that's not what you're saying. But it seemed like this 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 was always happening anyways. So the, the, the full-on murder-death ball does seem like a natural endpoint for the game. And their insist- insistence on getting him out seemed to be to generally genuinely protect him on some level, even if the, he was being very frustrating in his refusal to go along with the company's witches that 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 led to some antagonism but i don't know and i kind of i like that read of the movie better i like i like the idea that the um the the person investigating the sinister conspiracy there is a sinister conspiracy but he assumed that he was the target and instead he was the person they were trying to not target which is a great inversion of that um you know that standard uh, figure out the conspiracy. Most people that are trying to figure out a conspiracy, once they figure it out, they find out they're at the center of it. And he wasn't. He was trying to be pushed aside away from the conspiracy. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's more interesting in the sense of them trying to uh, – a vicious system trying to avoid a martyr. But I think it just makes more sense that like – because even the way the team reacts to the rule changes – like, yes, it's getting progressively more violent, but the way the team reacts to rule changes, it makes me feel like they even think that this is a bridge too far. And the way that the coach is panicky um, and is, like, trying to get him off the team also is less out of a sense of protection and more of a sense of, like, I gotta, I, I gotta fucking, like... I got these guys on this team. If you don't go away, it's gonna get a lot worse for them. But he can't quite say that because... You know, he's in on a this conspiracy. Um, I don't know. I, I also think it's interesting that like the violence at this level, I think, is could only work in this universe because of the amount of legal liabilities that come with it. <laughs> if everybody had the same amount of li- like lack of legal rights and everybody worked for the same corporation, like it would definitely ruin your ability to ever like yeah i was just gonna say that's a really good point like well here is your corporate appointed uh lawyer and here is the defendant's corporate appointed lawyer and the judge also works for us Um, yeah it's a weird it's a weird thing where like uh it's an it's an issue with totalitarian communism where everybody works for the state there's no real guarantee that you can ever get uh, just uh, justice from the state because uh, why would the state admit that it did anything wrong if it's a totalitarian state? Yeah, there's not that many HR departments in uh, totalitarian companies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they, they don't, they're like, you got it when we shit canned you and burned your house down, right? Like you got what we were doing. <laughs> I'm going to file a grievance with the union. So basically what we're saying here is that Rollerball is the ultimate expression of mandatory arbitration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This whole game started as a court case where one of those creative judges went a little too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what What are you guys' uh, final thoughts? Any, any final thoughts, any scenes that uh, we didn't really get to? I, uh, For my part, I don't really have any additional scenes. Like, it's... Um, it 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 really worked well for me. It kind of started out a little slow. The first game really gets you into it, and then it kind of plateaus a little bit, and then really picks up. I think uh, near the end, and uh, even though there may be some disagreement on this podcast, I I, I fuck. My favorite part really was the idea of a conspiracy less conspiracy 
or uh, for for James Khan's character. Uh, the the sports scenes are great. Um, you know, it's a, it, it has a little fat to trim, but I think in the in the it meets somewhere in the middle of uh, what I had heard, which is boring slog or amazing seventy sci fi masterpiece. I think it's somewhere. Uh, maybe, maybe not dead set in the middle, maybe, maybe leaning more towards the positive side of that equation, but it's definitely worth your time. It's very good. I would call it about a three and a half to four star out of five for me. Um, I think it's a very, very solid 70s science fiction. Um, it's certainly better than other examples. Uh, in fact, the 1991 you guys talked about last week, which sucks. Um, Band of Brothers, whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> you, you're Band you're of, out of all the right words now. <laughs> yeah, d- just go of blood of Don't heroes. Don't you the first airborne unit? <laughs> <laughs> blood of heroes. Anyway, I, I, I like this movie a lot. I think it's really well done. Uh, it obviously, like James Con, could have some flat, uh, you know, some flab cut off. Um, but I think it's a really solid movie. I, I think everybody should check it out. Uh, sometimes when you see these supposed classics of science fiction or dystopia from the 70s, you some of them work better than others. Uh, this one I think is really worth checking out. I agree. I think that it is uh, actually a really thrilling movie, um, but I think it has a lot of fat on the bone that uh, you need to be ready to uh, accept because it is a two-hour, five-minute movie. Though... It begins with a bang, it ends with a bang, and right in the middle, there's a a pretty good fight. Uh, One thing I didn't really say was uh, that I feel like they should have condensed the Tokyo fight and the Houston fight because they spend the whole first half of the movie rearing up for this Tokyo fight that's at about an hour, 20 minutes. And then there's a whole other... Uh, match against Houston and or sorry excuse me against New York and who gives a fuck like why is there not <laughs> yeah. just two why are there not just two matches in it uh, that you know between those two matches we learn a lot about the teams I like the length of the rollerball games because like rollerball is fun to watch um, and it teaches you a lot about the characters and the world by the how the announcers talk and all that but anyways so, um, I think it's a, a a movie that, if you want to call it a classic, call it a classic. It is not a boring slog, as I've been I've been told. Though there are segments in the middle where I think that it gets uh, sort of like Jonathan E. It gets a little too big for its britches, and it decides that it wants to get out of his worldview a little too much. And the authors. Um, feel like they want to, you know, make up their own new future society, but they don't want to find a character that would actually be exposed to the worst parts of that future society. <laughs> He's Jonathan E. is a pretty pampered dude. He's got a like, privilege All card. they're asking you to do is retire as a millionaire and get whatever you want for the rest of your life. Like, <laughs> you, can't, you can't really make a dystopic tale out of that. Um, so, if you're just going to have it be the powers that be trying to keep this dude down... What you do is you just have it be that. And the movie would be 20, 30 minutes shorter and a lot meaner and leaner. Uh, I would like yeah. to push back on one thing uh, that I think having three matches is necessary because you have the setup match where you learn how the game works. You have the Tokyo match where everything goes foobar and Moon Pie gets put in a coma. I can't say Moon Pie gets put in a coma. 
It's such a strange sentence. <laughs> Saddest day for the Pie family. Oh, God. And then you have the big uh, climactic matches. So I think the three-match structure is uh, is inherently strong. It's just the way it's done is a little... They could trim some stuff so that it flows better. Yeah, and I have two final notes uh, before we get into plugs and uh, next next episodes. Uh, all three of us gave three different run times for, for this movie. Um, so... Uh, I am assuming that some of us are working off the NTSC format, and some of us are on PAL, um, which <laughs> runs at different times. It's the nerdiest joke I've ever done on the show. Um, My but, DVD uh, is from 1998. So that's why time was different back then. Uh, no, but I, I do think it's – I'm sure anyone who's listening is like, well, he said it was an, two hours and nine minutes, and he said it was two hours and five minutes, and he said it was two hours and three minutes. You fucking continuity nerds. Who cares? Get a life. Hippies. Stop emailing us. <laughs> um, the second thing I'll notice that so this movie actually uh, with Death Race two thousand went on to an even bigger uh, legacy because uh, in the nineteen ninety eight made for TV movie Future Sport starring Dean Cain, oh, uh, the Future Sport in that movie took the director said took elements from uh, the Death Race and took elements from Rollerball and combined those two to make the Future Sport. So. Um, if you hadn't heard of this movie, this the sport in these movies that we've done has lived on in in the legacy of Kane, <laughs> Soul Reaver. May I Dean read? Kane. May I read what I was messaging with you guys? My favorite wiki line of uh, all time. Sure, but I think everyone's read it because it's their favorite movie. Look, uh, future sport. Trey, played by Dean Kane, must save the world from Hawaiian Liberation Organization terrorists by winning in the game of Future Sport. <laughs> what the fuck? It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It, it makes no sense. <laughs> also, that the game apparently involves hoverboards and rollerblades. Yeah, well, it, it, it should. It's a fucking Future Sport. <laughs> Um, yeah, you, because if it were just a surfboard, then it would just be a present yeah. sport. You can't have normal sports. Got to be future sports. Future sporty. Yeah. Um, Music by Stuart. Sports. You think the nerds that write scripts are going to write something about a regular sport? Music by Stuart Copeland. What the fuck? Guys, told you this movie is cinema classic. Oh god. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us again. It's always a blast. What do you have to uh, to plug? I got absolutely nothing to plug right now. Yes, you do. I do. You have a podcast. Uh, it's a bit on hiatus right now. We'll be coming back. Uh, it's Don't triangle. you have a website for reviews? I Here's do. Here's a badger you into this stuff? Yeah. Yes, tell, okay, tell the, fine. Tell Starting the lovely over, people. Start, folks. Let me start over here. Thank you. Yes, I do have a couple things to plug. I've got my uh, <laughs> podcast, Try It, You'll Like It. You can find, find it at tryandlikeit.blogspot.com. We're in a bit of a hiatus right now, but there are previous episodes that you can read up on. You can also check out my re movie reviews at joesseesmovies.blogspot.com. That's J-O-E-S-C-E-S-S-movies.blogspot.com. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely go check it out. And yeah, they have a great uh, back catalog of podcasts, so... Uh, there's a lot of good stuff to find there, even if they are on hi hiatus. Go back and look um, at our episode about Hope Floats. There's some arguments going on there. Yeah. I don't know who the defenders are, but uh, <laughs> I, would love to I would love to go back and hear that episode because I missed it somehow. Directed by Forrest Whitaker, which I learned from listening to the episode on Hope Floats. <laughs> which, when I first saw that movie, I, I saw that on the credit, I'm like, wait, wh What? 
<laughs> Must be a different Forrest Whitaker. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. a common name. I actually came around a bit on that movie. I, I think that's actually a weirdly enjoyable little movie. Yeah, do you, do you know what cognitive dissonance is? <laughs> yes. You would. Liberal education. <laughs> uh, so, hey, thanks again for joining us. My favorite Whitaker movie is the one where he shoots mobsters. Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai? Yes. Oh, that movie kicks so much Yes, ass. it does. Yeah, I've heard Peter say that it kicks a lot of ass uh, moments ago, but I, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> I've, I've been meaning to, though. Uh, it's got a great uh, soundtrack put together by the Rizzo, too. That, yeah, that guy's yeah, that guy's one of my top ten favorite Wu Tang members. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of my favorite Zas next to pizza and, and Giza and the Giza, yeah, <laughs> the Giza. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so next week we're wrapping up a Future Sports Month, uh, not with the movie Future Sport, but with uh, Running Man, uh, which is. Uh, I think a perfect one to end it on because I I can't I I love that movie. Um, I am very excited to watch it again. I haven't seen it in a couple years, um, and I think we're probably going to kind of circle uh, end the month on a thematic uh, note that we started it with talking about a game show host and a and a crazy dystopia world. So uh, I'm really excited for that. We're going to be joined by. Um, you know, the first Peter on this show, he's doing great. And so we're like, let's bring I think I think we've reached a point in our relationship where we can bring another Peter in. And Peter Schubert from Germany is going to be get up very early in the morning for him and join us on our podcast. We're very excited for that. Joseph, I think he's uh trying to replace me, but since he doesn't have Photoshop, uh he doesn't want to replace me with anybody whose name isn't Peter. So uh <laughs> I can't I'm too old to learn new names. <laughs> oh, we got a good thing going. We're ready to announce what we're doing for March. We're gonna go back to our favorite well, which is uh horror movies, but we're gonna be doing silent horror. Uh and the first week of March we're actually gonna take the week off. Uh Peter is moving to the West Coast. And he's told me it's going to be like a, I don't know, a 14-day drive or something like that. Uh, so we're not <laughs> going to make him uh, record from the road. Uh, so we're going to take a much-needed uh, vacation from each other. Uh, not a vacation for Peter, I guess. That's the way more work. Um, <laughs> moving across the country, uh, but then it's it should be it should be a little bit of vacation because I'll get to I'll get to see parts of the country I have never seen before. The first day will be all work because I have to get through the Midwest. Uh, day two, I'll be in the south the Southwest, so that should start the vacation. Yeah, a lot of red states. Oh yeah, the uh, everyone everyone that pumps your gas will have voted for Trump. Oh God, uh, the. Uh, so yeah, then Peter, we we do have our we do have uh, movies and guests lined up, but we haven't figured out a schedule. So why don't you tell everyone uh, what what movies and who is joining us for those movies for the month of March? So for the month of March, uh, we're going to be uh, uh, tackling silent horror movies, uh, and our, at two of the movies we're going to be doing that we know we have in the schedule are uh, Hacks on. Uh, which is uh, this awesome movie about witchcraft, and uh, that's going to be with Rick Kelly. And we're also going to be doing uh, Nosferatu, the uh, unofficial adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, we're going to be doing that as well with Rick Kelly. So yeah. uh, it's going to be a very silent and very Rick Kelly month. Yeah, very, very easy to get sick of Rick. Uh, this is what we call it Sick of Rick Month. Uh, <laughs> Sick of Rick. Uh, no, but uh, Rick writes a lot about uh, – he's been a guest on our show a couple times. He's great. And he writes a lot um, on LudditeRobot.com about silent horror so and silent movies in general. 
Yeah, please read his website. Uh, Rick is a fantastic guy. So you seem like the perfect guest. And then we're also going to be joined by uh, Sam Scott, uh, who uh, who's going to join us for uh, the Fly episode back in October. Unfortunately, uh, got a bug himself. Do you get it? Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to let the silence go because I deserve it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of editing options. I want that joke to go. Uh, but he's going to be joining us for the cabinet of Dr. Calgary. So we're very excited to have him on. And to, I, I absolutely love that movie. So very excited to talk about it. Uh, on a, on a big change of pace month for us, I think, even though it is horror movies, um, We've only done, I think, two movies pre-1960 at all, so. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it'll be good for us to uh, talk about movies uh, that are from various eras so we can keep ourselves fresh. Rather than just talking about uh, 80s, 70s genre movies, we can talk about uh uh, movies before the term genre movie was a thing, but still qualify. Yeah, and to honor our entries, we're going to be doing the podcast, uh, in the same way the movies were filmed, uh, they're going to be. It's going to be silent podcasts. Um, it's just going to be an so hour. I'll, I can release the episode tomorrow. Yeah, it's an hour and forty five <laughs> minutes of just white noise. So, yeah, the the uh, episode on those for Octu, we got kind of crazy, uh, and it is a eight hour silent podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, I uh, we got John Cage to do the production. And I think it's going to be a really good episode. Yeah, just every once in a while when you'll know, you won't be able to hear us talk, but when things get a little bit heated, you'll hear the music speed up a little bit. Like, it's like, oh, I don't know what they're saying, but I bet they're angry with each other. It's a snow globe incident all over again. Why is their yakety sack playing? That Aaron guy, he's so mad at that Peter guy. I bet he's going to pull his top hat right over his ears. Someone's tied to the railroad tracks. <laughs> that is, that I tied myself because death is the only answer. What the hell? That is the third Snidely Whiplash reference I've heard today, including this podcast and two other podcasts I listened to today. Snidely Whiplash references. That's just weird. Yeah. Make America 1912. Yeah. Hey, other podcasts, <laughs> stay off our turf. Yeah. Um, take a walk. Take a walk. You're fired. Um, You're fired. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, WLTWpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash We Love to Watch. And uh, yeah, reach out to us. Give us some feedback, give us some support, uh, suggest movies for the show, all that. We are also available on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.